Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. I do this full-time and every dollar you give helps keep all of it going. Don't forget, I have two other podcasts out there, Pucks and Cups, and From John to Justin. Now both of those are reaching the end of their runs, and I have two new podcasts coming in May and June. First, there will be Canada's Great War, where I look at the entire history of Canada in the First World War. And in June, we'll have Coast to Coast, where I look at the Transcontinental Railway and its building. Today I'm looking at the town of Pincher Creek. Located in southern Alberta, it's a wonderful community right near the Rocky Mountains and it has a really cool history. I'd also like to thank the Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village for helping with the research on this episode. And I'll be talking about that location in just a little bit. As usual, when I'm looking at the history of a community, I won't be going through a chronological history, but rather looking at various aspects of the history. So let's begin. The Indigenous Long before the Europeans arrived, the Indigenous roamed through the landscape and the future location of Pincher Creek. Often, they were following the massive herds of bison that moved through the area. The Indigenous nations that lived in the area were the Blackfoot, the Pecanee, and the Kootenay. According to the history of the early days of Pincher Creek written in 1920, the Indigenous name for Pincher Creek was Little Spitzy with Spitzy meaning a stream with trees along its bank. One of the most notable indigenous men to live in the area was Whitebird, who came from eastern Oregon into Montana and then up into Canada during the Nez Perce War in 1877. Following the Battle of Bear Pond, Montana, Whitebird and his fellow warriors were attacked at night by General Nelson Miles and his force. After a five-day fight, many of his warriors surrendered, but Whitebird refused. He would leave in the night of October 5, 1877 with a hundred people, many women and children, slipping through the American lines and coming into Canada. He would arrive at the camp of Sitting Bull at first, before moving on to Pincher Creek to settle and live out their lives. Whitebird would never return to the United States, and he was murdered on March 6, 1892 by an indigenous man named Charlie Hassanahamakit, who was sent to Stony Mountain Institution to serve out his days. Also in the area were the Métis, who began to settle further west as Canadians and Europeans pushed in from the east. The Métis settled in the area as the bison trade was beginning to decline, and it was through the Métis that the legendary Father Lacombe would come to the area. For many of the Métis who were displaced following the 1885 Northwest Resistance, they would settle in the Pincher Creek area, and many Métis still remain in the area. The Founding of the Community The history of Pincher Creek dates back to 1866, or at least the name does. It was in that year that a group of prospectors named Joe Healy, Red Rock Jim, Mart Holloway, John Nelson, and William Lee were in the area. While there, they lost a pincer, what we would call pliers today, in a small creek nearby. These pincers were important as they were used to trim the feet of horses, and it was not something you wanted to lose while in the middle of nowhere. Hence the name Pincher Creek, but not quite yet. 
1874, the Northwest Mounted Police conducted their march west and arrived in southern Alberta. They would set up their headquarters at nearby Fort McLeod and patrols through the area soon began. Soon after, one Northwest Mounted Police officer happened to discover the rusting tool that the prospectors had lost six years previous in the creek. From there, Pincher Creek was the name given to the creek. In 1880, that name appeared on a geological survey report. Two years after naming the creek, the Northwest Mounted Police set up a horse farm and it would operate for the next five years. It was from those officers that the community would begin to spring up and several of the officers chose to stay in the area. Before the community of Pincher Creek was ever formed though, it received a well-known visitor when in 1881 the Marquis of Lorne, the Governor General of Canada, arrived. At the time, Colonel McLeod of the Northwest Mounted Police had a ranch nearby and it was at that ranch that the Governor General would visit. According to McLeod, the Vice Regal was very impressed with the entire district. In 1882, the town site of Pincher Creek was laid out, and the next year, James Schofield would open a store in the community. In the store, people could buy everything from canned goods and chewing tobacco to spurs and cowboy hats. He also served as the first postmaster. One year later, he and Harry Hyde were co-owners of the store, and a blacksmith shop was also set up around this time, and a schoolhouse was built. And the community of Pincher Creek was beginning to take form. The small community would begin to grow, and on August 18, 1898, the village of Pincher Creek was incorporated. On May 12, 1906, the town of Pincher Creek was incorporated. The Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village Without a doubt, the most notable historical attraction in the Pincher Creek area is the Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village. This is no small museum, but two museum buildings and 27 heritage cabins that will allow you to delve into the fascinating history of the area. It was in 1966 that the Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village was established with the goal of preserving the pioneer heritage of the community. From those small beginnings, the museum has grown to include many buildings and 30,000 artifacts from the area. The entire village is an outdoor heritage facility and visitors can walk into the historic buildings, view the artifacts and guide themselves through the entire history of the area. On top of that, visitors can also explore six acres of beautiful gardens. As there are 27 buildings you can explore, I won't go through all of them, but I'm going to touch on some of the more interesting ones here. The Father Lacombe Hermitage was built in 1885 using logs that were hauled by a horse from a nearby lake, then squared and notched with broad axes. These logs were then erected into a place of worship. Father Lacombe was one of the most important individuals in the early history of Alberta, helping to get the railroad built through by working with the local indigenous people. The Fishburn School, which dates from 1894, was the focal point of the community. It's not only a schoolhouse, but also a place where dances, parties, concerts, and much more were held. The school would operate until 1948 when a new school was built for the growing population. The Cox House was built in 1887 by A.E. Cox on an acreage near Pincher Creek. The home would be moved a hundred years after it was built to the village, but it served as the home for the Cox family from 1887 to 1970, and it's believed to be one of, if not the oldest, homes under one founding family in southwest Alberta. As for A.E. Cox, he had arrived in Winnipeg in 1882 and then going to Regina during the construction of the CPR. 
He went the rest of the way in a wagon and cart until he arrived in Pincher Creek. And it was here he served as the first teacher of the local school from 1884 to 1891. In 1897, he was the Dominion Lands agent, and he also ran a successful farm nearby. The Walrand Ranch House was built in 1894 and was the living quarters of the ranch managers from 1883 until the 1950s. Inside, there was a large parlor that was used by the elite of the ranch. If you're interested in indigenous history, the First Nations Gallery features a wide assortment of artifacts that gathered over the years that showcases the 500 generations of indigenous who lived in the area prior to the contact with Europeans beginning in the 1700s. One of the oldest structures in the area is the Northwest Mounted Police Horse Barn, which was built more than 138 years ago and has gone through several moves. Today, it sits in a preserved state within sight of its original location. And you can learn more about the village by subscribing to their YouTube channel, visiting their website at kootenaybrown.ca, or listening to their podcast, Radio KBPV. The Lost Lemon Mine In the Rocky Mountains, there's rumored to be a gold deposit of immense wealth, but for over 150 years, no one has been able to find it. The story begins with Frank Lemon and his friend Black Jack, who apparently discovered the gold deposit in 1870, somewhere around the Crow's Nest Pass. According to the story, Lemon and Black Jack got into an argument after finding the gold over whether they would come back in the spring or camp where they were. After the argument, it is said that both men then went to bed, but Lemon would crawl out of his blanket and hit his friend in the head with an axe while he slept. After realizing what he did, he built a huge fire and left the area with his gun. Some say that he was slowly starting to go mad by this point. Two Blackfoot apparently saw the murder and the gold strike, and after speaking to their chief, they were sworn to secrecy, and a curse was apparently put on the area where the murder happened. After Lemon returned to the town and confessed to what he had done, the priest kept his secret safe but sent a trapper named John McDougall to bury the body of Blackjack. McDougall would later be hired to lead a group of miners to the spot where the mine was, but as he journeyed with them he stopped at Fort Kitt, Alberta near Lethbridge and drank himself to death. Lafayette French, who had funded Lemon and Blackjack initially, went looking for the mine several times over the next 30 years, after apparently finding the mine, he wrote his friend to tell of his success. Unfortunately, the cabin he was staying in soon burned to the ground, killing him. As for Lemon himself, as soon as he began to approach anywhere near the area where the mine was, he would be overcome with anxiety and would journey no further. As the years went by, his mental health continued to decline and he slowly lost his mind. The priest that Lemon had confessed to would organize an expedition in 1883 to find the mine given what Lemon had told him. Before he could venture out, though, a forest fire blazed through the area and rendered the route impassable. To this date, the mine has not been found. I actually did a video about this a couple years ago on my YouTube channel, so just go to youtube.com slash c slash canadianhistoryx. That link will be in my show notes. The LaBelle Mansion one of the major landmarks of Pincher Creek is the LaBelle Mansion, built in 1910 by Timothy LaBelle, a prominent local businessman who would live in the house until 1924. 
At that point, the mansion was donated to the Daughters of Jesus for use as a hospital, eventually becoming the St. Vincent's Municipal Hospital. LaBelle was born in Quebec and soon felt the pull of the West and would arrive in 1881 at the age of 24. Soon after, he set up a small shop with Tim Hinton and the business would form the T. LaBelle and Company business I mentioned before. The impact of LaBelle in the area can't be understated. As a private banker, he would often loan out money to struggling families while also helping newcomers in the area. Built between 1909 and 1910 at a cost of $22,000 or $500,000 today, when it was sold to the $150,000 today. Level would pass away in 1935. In 1927, a chapel was added to the museum, and further additions were made in 1935, 1940, 1950, and 1955. In 1974, the building was named the Pincher Creek Healthcare Center. In 1976, the building became a historic resource, and today it's occupied by the Allied Arts Council. And inside, you will find a public art gallery, gift shop, and pottery studios. The DU Ranchlands Cabin Located near Pincher Creek, this one-room log cabin dates back to the early 1900s and today serves as an excellent example of an early 1900s homestead. Around the time of its construction, the valley was used by ranchers and miners who were working in the Crow's Nest Pass. By the 1930s, the cabin was mostly used by families passing through where they would briefly stay before going on to set up their own homesteads. In the 1940s and 1950s, it became a gathering place for people to socialize, host dances, and conduct meetings. Today, the log cabin is a landmark of the lives of the early pioneers, and it serves as a gathering place for the people in the valley. On September 9, 2008, it was made a municipal heritage resource. I'd like to take a break away from the episode for a second to talk about ExploreNet. I've spent most of my life living in rural areas in Canada, and I remember the days of dial-up internet and spotty high-speed service. For the past three years, I have been a customer of ExploreNet, and I can honestly say that it is the best rural internet I have ever had. My job as a podcaster means I spend a lot of time researching online, interviewing people over Zoom, and uploading content. Through it all, ExploreNet has provided me with excellent service. When I'm not working, I enjoy streaming content on several streaming platforms and even doing some online gaming with a friend in Ontario. ExploreNet allows me to do all of that with ease. Right now, they offer up to 50 megabits per second on their new LTE network with unlimited data. Their service has only become faster and better since I first signed on. Today and beyond, ExploreNet is investing in building and upgrading the network at a rapid pace. ExploreNet is rural, and that is their route, and that is their focus. For more information about rural internet options in your area, go to ExploreNet.com or call 1-866-285-2253. Pincher Creek at Heritage Acres Another great museum to visit in the Pincher Creek area is the Heritage Acres Museum an open-air, 180-acre site that offers you a glimpse at the early pioneer history of the community. Established in 1988, the museum is operated by the Old Man River Antique Equipment and Threshing Club, with the goal of promoting education and interest in the agricultural industry of southern Alberta. 
At the museum, there are several buildings you can explore, like with the Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village. I'll look at a few of these, but there are 23 different attractions and buildings to explore. The Snyder House was one of the first buildings to be moved to Heritage Acres. Built in 1909, it was moved when the Old Man Dam and Reservoir was constructed. One of the interesting aspects of this house is that a few people have described interactions and encounters with ghosts. Today, it is the administration office and gift shop for the park. The Jumbo Valley Knox Presbyterian Church was built in 1917 near Granham. It sat in its original spot for over 80 years until the church was closed due to a declining number of people attending. The church was then moved to the village where it's still used for church services. One fascinating aspect of the church is that its pews, cross and organ are all original from the building. The Ashvale School was built in 1909 and would spend the first 50 years operating as a school before it was turned into a recreational hall for the people of the Porcupine Hills. Today, it sits on the museum property with its original school books, desks and chalkboard inside. The Duke of Boers came from Russia, fleeing persecution for their beliefs at the turn of the 20th century. In Canada, they would set up lives, build communities and influence the history of the country. On the museum grounds, you will find the Dukabor Barn, built in 1917 by the Christian community of the Universal Brotherhood. In 1990, the building was moved to the museum, and inside you can see a display of farm and horse dioramas, along with local brands. In July of 2019, it had the honour of housing the horses ridden for the RCMP musical ride. The Waterton National Park Located only a short drive south of Pincher Creek is the stunningly beautiful Waterton Lakes National Park. The area is so beautiful that as early as 1886 it was suggested that the area be turned into a park to preserve its beauty. And that wouldn't happen until May 30, 1895 when 140 square kilometers of unnamed forest was turned into a reserve under the Dominion Lands Act. While the area was turned into a reserve, the government approved reserving and selling of land in the park for the purpose of oil prospecting in 1898. In 1902, John Lynham would drill the first exploration well in Alberta near Cameron Creek, but little came of it. Today, that well and its surrounding area are now designated as a National Historic Site of Canada. Within 10 years of forming the park, half the sections of the land had been sold or reserved for the purpose of oil exploration. In 1911, Frank Oliver, the Minister of the Interior, introduced an act that designated all mountain parks as forest reserves. On June 8, 1911, 35 square kilometers of the Waterton Lakes Forest Reserve was turned into a Dominion Park, far below what park staff expected. Three years later, though, the area was expanded significantly to 1,096 square kilometers. Between 1926 and 1927, the Prince of Wales Hotel was built in the park in the hope of bringing in Americans during the Prohibition era. The hotel would open in July of 1927 and was the only grand railway hotel to be built by an American company. As for the name, that was given to it as a means to encourage the Prince of Wales, who would later become King Edward VIII, to stay at the hotel during a tour of Canada that year, but he chose to stay at a ranch nearby. In 1992, the hotel was designated as a National Historic Site of Canada. 
1932, the Waterton Glacier International Peace Park was created, making it the first of its type to span a border in the entire world. In 1979, the park was named Canada's second biosphere reserve and the first Canadian national park to take part in the UNESCO program. In 1995, the Peace Park was named a UNESCO World Heritage Site. In 2017, a terrible fire swept through the area, but from that, major discoveries were made. Over 250 Blackfoot camps were found, all dating to at least 300 years. Without the fire, none of these would have been found, and at these camps, many stone tools, artifacts, and arrowheads have been found. John George Kootenay Brown All places have their unique individuals, but few were as colorful and as unique as Kootenay Brown of Pincher Creek, and he lived more in his life than most of us do in five lives. Born in Ireland in 1839, Brown would go on to serve in the British Army during the 1850s, including during the India Mutiny. Eventually, he had the desire to travel out to North America, and he became active during the Caribou Gold Rush. While there, he would trade with the Kootenai people, and it was through his work with them that he was given the name that stuck for the rest of his life, Kootenai. After taking part in a gold rush, he then became involved with the legendary Pony Express in the United States. While there, he was arrested and tried for murder of a North Dakota claim jumper, but was acquitted as it was deemed self-defense. In 1865, he crossed into his new home of Canada through the Waterton Lakes. He quickly fell in love with the stunning beauty of the area and resolved that this would be where he would live. He wouldn't settle there right away, though, and came back over a decade later to enjoy the rest of his life in such a beautiful place. For the next 40 years, he would live in cabins and homesteads in the area, and he would begin to trade with the indigenous at the Waterden Lakes, while also hunting and taking tourists through the area to see the beauty for themselves. Brown recognized that the beauty of the area had to be saved, and he would push for Waterton Lakes to be preserved for generations down the road. As I said before, in 1895, the park was created, and he was made the first warden. A decade and a half later, he was made the acting superintendent, and he would pass away a few years later in July 1916 at the age of 77. Matthew Halton One of the most notable residents to come out of Pincher Creek was Matthew Halton, who was born in the community on September 7, 1904, and attended school there. He would attend a teacher's college in Calgary, and then went on to the University of Alberta where he began to gain experience in journalism. Studying at King's College London and the London School of Economics, he began to report on European affairs for newspapers in Canada. He would cover some of the most significant European events of the 1930s, including the rise of the Nazis in Germany, the Spanish Civil War, and the Munich Crisis in 1938. In 1940, Halton worked for the Toronto Star's Washington, D.C. Bureau, briefly before he was sent to cover the North African campaign during the war. For the next two years, he would cover the campaign for the CBC primarily. In 1943, he was named the CBC's Senior War Correspondent, and he covered the final two years of the war from London. He then remained in Europe, still working for the CBC, covering many notable events including the Nuremberg Trials, the funeral of King George VI, and the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. In 1956, the University of Alberta presented him with an honorary doctorate, 
but sadly he passed away following stomach surgery only a few months later on December 3, 1956. Today, Matthew Halton High School in Pincher Creek is named for him. And I will end this episode with one of his reports from the front during the Second World War. This is Matthew Halton of the CBC speaking from France. It's two minutes to five. Two minutes to five in Normandy. And the sun hasn't risen yet over us or over the Germans 800 yards away. It will rise on a fearful scene because at five o'clock precisely, the Canadians are going to attack. And they'll attack with the most enormous concentration of fire ever put down on a small objective. It's hardly light enough to read these notes into the microphone. The morning is as soft and beautiful as a swan gliding down a quiet river. But just wait a minute. I'm in a stone barn with a company of Western Canadian machine gunners who are going to be in battle soon, drawing fire to aid the main attack. Plainly in front of me, not half a mile away, is the powerful German strong point of Carpique Village and Carpique Airdrome, two or three miles west of Caen. That position has been a thorn in our side. Listen to this, and then imagine it at least ten times as loud. And now 25 minutes have passed. 25 minutes of the most, I think, the most ferocious barrage I've ever seen. When I first spoke, we could see the hangars, and we could see the aerodrome in the first light of dawn. We could see the German strong point. But now, now there's nothing but the fog of war. And to be on this battlefield, one understands the meaning of the phrase, the fog of war. I sit here, or I stand here, in this observation post, an old farm with two or three Canadian officers, two or three Canadian privates, and watch and wonder. All we can see is smoke and the terrible burst of flame as one of the huge naval shells falls on the enemy position. Occasionally, an enemy shell falls near us. And you can hear as I speak, you can hear the chattering, this hard stuttering, of the machine gun. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at Pincher Creek, Alberta. If you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And don't forget, you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month, just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Randall McCallum, Diane Wade, Laurieann Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. 
Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.